Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. Well, Ed, how are you doing today? Wonderful. How are you doing? I'm here in sunny England. It hasn't stopped raining for like three weeks now. Um, the pubs have just opened, but um, yeah, I mean, the weather's just, it's very, very British weather. Not oh, no. Man, yeah. I'm sorry. I know it's not good, especially not being able to get out at all. It's kind of yeah them. we've got camping in a couple of weeks as well so that's another kind of very british holiday you go camping in the pouring rain it's really cold everyone's pretending <laughs> it's not terrible and it's just really unenjoyable for everyone i love it i love it <laughs> you, you gotta roll with it right um well ed before we get jump into some of the questions we have could you give us kind of a brief bio and and some of the big themes you're interested in um uh, well i suppose i mean the book i had out uh Small Men in the Wrong Side of History is really about conservatism uh, and that came out. It's all about my pessimistic worldview and uh, it kind of explores the sort of personality types of conservatism as well as the history. And it came it came out in England just as the week as uh, we were hit by COVID-19. So my pessimism was proved completely correct in that case. Uh, I just knew there'd be some sort of plague as soon as the book came published. Uh, so that was mainly... Um, yeah, I mean, my, my basic theme is that, you know, I was born in 1978, so my the sort of cohort, my generation, the people I know, but, you know, people, both upper middle class Londoners who went to university are sort of, you know, becoming are unusually liberal compared to previous generations, and we're not, they're not becoming more conservative. And uh, the data and stats in the States as well has a kind of similar basically similar trends so from the 70s and 80s people born then aren't becoming sort of more liberal in fact they're, I mean, they're, they're becoming more liberal um and so i'm becoming i'm a sort of anomaly uh amongst my generation and i i kind of see that as a sort of kind of cultural shift i mean the analogy the obvious analogies of the reformation um and also the sort of christianization of rome in the fourth century were a complete shift in culture and i, I think you know that what happened in the 60s was kind of a completely uh, huge um, cultural shift, just as what happens at like the three twenties, and it's, and and now we're in the next generation. And what what happens in these kind of cultural revolutions is that 20, 30 years later, there's often like another like burst of energy, and a more extreme version of the new faith kind of comes along. You know, Calvinism followed Lutheranism like twenty years later, and I think what we've seen in the last seven or eight years. Um, the Great Awakening is the kind of that second burst of energy, where it's like the real defeat of the, the old way. So I kind of, I sort of identify with you know, those people who in those previous revolutions were on the losing side. And, you know, you eventually grow up to see your grandchildren just in a sort of world which is completely unrecognizable, really. Uh, so it's quite, <laughs> that sounds quite bleak. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm just, I mean, I'm interested in history generally. So I, I read some sort of short uh, kind of young adult history books for American publisher and all about English history. Uh, I don't know you want to talk about, I, I sort of, while I was reading a lot about history in various ways, I was 
I was always interested in like the Franks and the, the start of Europe as an idea. And um, so I sort of published an ebook online and it was sort of, uh, it's published by a small publisher, but um, yeah, that sort of interested me like where, you know, where Europe came from as an idea. And, um, and it, the only books around that, the, you know, the eighth century and the Franks was, um, you know, sort of Victorian books, which you can get on, you know, Kindle's great for that, but and the language is quite, is archaic. Um, so I thought there'd be, you know, nice to sort of update one. Yeah, Definitely. so there's, there's my, you know, history, politics and, and, you know, doom and decline. That's my <laughs> theme. I love it. I love it. And, you know, on this show, we always ask, you know, whether the guests are optimist or pessimist. And we've talked to about 50 people now. And it's really interesting because every single one of the is an optimist. Right. You know, we've got a couple of short term pessimists. But and, and so I thought it was great. Like, it's good to have a, a dissenting voice here. And um, I, I, that's part of the reason why I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, no one ever accused me. I mean, I'm optimistic about stuff, some stuff in the long term. I think there'll be some good good technological things in the long term yeah yeah i'm not i mean i'm with michelle welbeck you know he said what the the new world after covid will be like well you know he said it'll be the same but worse (laughs) (laughs) i think he's i think he's on the money there um well, Ed, you know, I, I see a lot of your thinking and work around conservatism is kind of like a Chesterton's fence argument or reminder that, you know, we need to be really careful about changing things because institutions and, and practices can be important for reasons that aren't explicit. Um, we talked to uh, Pete Leeson. I don't know if you know him, but he's an economist at George Mason. And he actually works on like medieval ordeals and like sassy wood and Liberia for determining judicial outcomes. And, yeah. you know, on its face, you know, the UN's like, don't use sassy wood. They give you like a fake poison to try to determine whether or not you've, uh, you know, committed right. some crime. And it's a great social technology. Um, but on the face, you don't understand it unless you kind of get to the correct level. Because um, it seems like bonkers, right? That you would, you know, this practice um you, what do you think about that is that a fair characterization yeah i mean the, the thing i mean all cultures and this is a common thing to all cultures is they develop taboos and um traditions um ways of doing things that don't really make sense but uh, and no one really understands but over the long term the ones that have proved really effective um do so for a reason you know even if you go back to uh, you know, reading about the, the great, the greatest pandemic, the Mongols, when they used to hunt, you know, they have taboos about if a, if a rodent is slow, you don't eat it, you don't catch it, because <laughs> they're the rodent slow, you know, um, That's great. They, didn't, they didn't know about the plague, but they knew there's something bad going on. If, if a rodent run away from a Mongol, there's, you know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, it, you know, institutions arise... Basically, I mean, this Burke's thing, isn't it? They rise as sort of evolutionary process in the, from beginning with a sort of state of violence. And then they sort of mellow into legitimacy. You know, the, the royal family obviously is one that appeals to Americans so much. But the, the, the institution of royalty, which uh, sort of remains in Britain, despite all sort of rational, it's the most irrational thing. You'd never design a system like that. <laughs> Not with our royal family. Um, but, you know, overwhelming, you know, data after data and um, survey after survey, study after survey shows that comparing different countries with monarchies and republics, the monarchies tend to be better run for all sorts of different reasons. Um, there is a kind of sense to that system. I mean, you know, would you rather live in Syria or Jordan? There's like no, or you know, Algeria or Monaco, there's, you, but you're just better off 
with the older system of government. Um, obviously, America has been pretty successful down here, so that's a. Um, but America obviously had the advantage of many different other qualities as well. Um, and well, and it's, it's also it's also a question whether you know America seems to be successful to the extent our presidents are monarchs, like so FDR, Lincoln, yeah. Washington. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean, and that's been said. I mean, you know, the czar-like power of the of the U.S. president. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, and you know, obviously, I suppose in recent times, the the two institutions that conservatives want to defend the most: the family and, to a certain extent, the church. And, I mean. There's, you know, even the most hardened radical, I think, would ha struggle to find the argument that alternatives to the family have proved better since, you know, every sort of experimental model, um, whether it's, you know, communes or uh, lone parent families always have um, w worse outcomes on average. Uh, well, you know, I think the benefits of the church are sort of more being taken seriously now. I mean, there is more serious debate about the, the, the benefits of religion now in England. Uh, only now that it's kind of become so sort of basically disappeared. Well, um, you know, I think we 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we were going through the whole new atheist thing. That was the, sort of the last power of the church. And now a lot of people are saying, well, actually, you know, even if you're not a believer, it's obviously there's a lot to be said for these institutions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, Cheston's fence is it's it's cited a lot for, for a very good reason. I think that sort of says something. Interesting. And there's also the temptation that, um, you know, there are lots of incentives for destroying things and for knocking them down. Uh, personal incentives for, you know, commentators of politics, because, you know, it's exciting, it's dynamic, and it makes you, it makes one look um, sort of forward thinking. And, um, and in contrast, it's, you know, chess and it's kind of quite a boring argument. It's like, well, let's just keep it. <laughs> Um, you know, there's no, you know, there's nothing to stir the blood there. Like, no, you know, <laughs> that's, um, so, you know, in, in a sort of a very visual age, uh, you know, dominated not first by social, by television and then social media, you know, the incentives are to, to do away with things because it makes one look, you know, glorious. But um, yeah, I'm always of the thing, you know, don't take away the fence because there's just going to be a bull in the next field, you know, which will <laughs> be the case. You've got to be quite, quite careful. Um, to what extent do you think people's political beliefs are just kind of inborn genetic and then like pretty hardwired? Uh, I mean, I looked, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, a psychologist or a geneticist. I mean, what I looked at the literature, I don't know, lots of the stuff is, I mean, most things pretty seem to be 50, 50. I mean, that goes for any um, character trait. Um, yeah. Not our politics exactly, but you know, the, the personality traits that tend to influence our politics. I mean, if you're uh, more conscientious, you're more likely to be conservative, not necessarily, but if you're more neurotic, you're more likely to be uh, left of center and um, same with openness, even more so in fact. Um, but these, I mean, these are all kind of situational, aren't they? Um, I, I often wondered if I was growing up in a different, like if I was growing up in the late 19th century, would I be a liberal rather than Tory? And I think I probably would have been. I don't know. Most of my family were liberals. They were mostly non-conformists. So uh, I don't know why I've come out like this. <laughs> I, I think you know there are certain there are certain political events and triggers that um, might, in a more conservative people, might sort of trigger a more defensive response. The a feeling that things are 
changing too rapidly or or something we care about is being threatened um and i think from the 60s onwards there is a bit of that sense there i mean there are certain there are certainly some i mean my i mean i mentioned my book my dad was my dad started off as like very like a young communist in the 50s you know in that kind of upper class way a lot of um young Englishmen sort of looked to socialism as a better way after the war and he just became so deeply reactionary by the end you know completely against <laughs> against universal voting you know again basically against, entirely against the modern world um and his father was also apparently quite right wing as well so I, yeah maybe there is certainly some genetic influence on it, i think Definitely. It's quite interesting. And that leads me to my, my next question. Have you heard of the, the thrive survive theory of the political spectrum before? Right. Yeah. So I, I do wonder, and just for the listeners, the idea that like, you know, it, uh, if you need to survive, you adopt more conservative principles. Like if you're in a zombie apocalypse, you go look, get a bunch of guns, you go just like focus on your family. You're very skeptical right, yeah, of the outgroup. Um, and you read Alexander as well, then, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I run a SSC meetup here at the Triangle. Um, yeah, yeah, he's he's like the master. Yes, he's he's... London amongst lots of people. But yeah, he's quite, quite, quite an interesting guy. Um, I really like his work. It, it, so I, I I do have a question. As we get richer, it seems like you know surviving becomes somewhat you know less important. And, and I wonder, does that kind of explain some of the slide left word that um, is either perceived or real that's been going on? Sure. I mean, I mean, my own problem caveat this is that every time I've sort of looked at any psychological study that looks into, you know, I ask my psychologist friends after, they say, oh, well, that one hasn't replicated, that one's bunk, and that one's, and almost every single <laughs> psychologist study is right. turned out to be. So it's just everything has to be sort of grain of salt. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, if you, I mean, until the modern, until the modern world, you know, until the late nineteenth century, pretty much everyone lived in grinding poverty before the industrial revolution took off. So, obviously, people aren't going to be interested in like wild ideas of liberal individualism and progressivism and everything. And the things that would concern us would just seem uh, utterly alien to them uh, and in- inconsequential. And I mean, what you're describing is also, you know, is another word for it is basically decadence, right? Yeah. And we're on to the t- top of the, pi- the hierarchy of needs. I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the main objections to sort of all these cultural issues is just that people are sort of uh, kind of fighting and whining over nothing, really. And uh, there's something very demoralizing about that, just hearing people complain about complete non-issues um, when they haven't really got many things to worry about. I mean, and part of you wonders, like, would you be happier? Like when the sort of social justice warriors is, you know, blah, blah, someone, you know, mispronounced my pronoun or that cartoon racial stereotypes, you know, this group. And I think, would you actually be happier in like a war zone or like a kind of family or something like that? Would like, if you'd actually something to focus your mind on, um, maybe you'd actually be a happier person. I mean, like I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm quite happy to live in a decadent 21st century society where I can just eat food all day. um, I mean, I think part of it is a sort of, you know, a lot of politics is just basically like an autoimmune system problem. So, you know, like say this is the example of racism, particularly, you know, American, I say intelligentsia, but we're talking about like New York Times columnists, that's probably not the right word, but they, you know, they're obsessed with racism and like a problem, an issue that has been declining by vast amounts in American society. American society now, 
is probably like the least racially prejudiced of any society in history or in the world compared to any else in the world. I mean, apart from a, a bit of Western Europe, and even Western Europe is not as anti-racist in America. Um, the more it's gone away, the more obsessed with it they are. So it's basically an autoimmune system. You know, your immune system can end up destroying you because it's, I mean, then that is what sometimes happens with COVID and with, you know, the Spanish flu. It was that the healthiest people die because their, their immune system becomes obsessed with this idea that it has to eradicate um, a disease that isn't, isn't actually a threat to them so much. Um, so a lot of politics now is just people obsessed with um, kind of these uh, overblown historical problems which aren't really much of an issue anymore. I mean, obviously every society has issues, but in this way, I'm quite a wick, you know, in the sense that we have got, um, you know, healthy and wealthy in most cases. Um, and so people just find something to be angry about and to be upset about. Um, and that kind of brings about this urge to sort of basically destroy uh, institutions. I mean, you know, there is a certain extent from watching it on this side of the world that a lot of, um, you know, America's culture warriors really just want to, the ultimate thing is just to sort of basically wind up America as a, as a concept because they think it's so inherently bad. Um, and that's the kind of ultimate institution. Like you don't want to, I mean, that is the ultimate chess and fence, right? Right. You know, the country itself. Um, and, and from this side of the Atlantic, you know, a force of stability and, and freedom for a long time for many of us. Um, but there was a sense of, you know, we're just bored. So let's just, you know, create havoc and chaos and see what happens. Like, you know how it's going to end. This is going to be much worse than how it was before. <laughs> like all the people who want chaos and havoc tend to be, you know, university educated weaklings who will be the first to have their head <laughs> by a by rock or by revolution. Like, you guys always get killed in these revolutions. I happens in Russia, I happens in France. Um, <laughs> there's kind of need for, you know, drama and chaos and, um, and you know, change for its own sake, which to me is just like, that's a terrible idea. Definitely. No, that, that's really well put. It, it seems like so, so virtual and unreal and like it, the battles have gotten, yeah, it, it's, it's quite interesting. I, I'm curious. So you you live with a bunch of kind of you know in in the U.S. they call them you know it's this hilarious term coastal elites or whatever. Oh yeah, you know, right. It, right. And, and you know it's uh you know, what's it like being um you know a conservative and and do you think it gives you a good perspective to be like integrated within this certain class of people and hold a different set of of views? Um. Well. I mean, where I live, it's in North London. It's a sort of, I mean, in, in English terms, it's zone three. So that means, you know, we're talking three and four story, you know, quite dense. It's like, I mean, it'll be somewhere like in Brooklyn would be the equivalent. Gotcha. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, almost everyone, where I live, it's, I don't know, it was one of the highest remain voting areas in the country, which is, was 75 to 80% remain voting. So that's, um, that's a sort of indication of, gone to university, votes Labour or Liberal Democrats, you know, has all the right opinions. And um, I mean, a lot of people in the area, like fellow parents and friends, even not close friends, but people I sort of know, wouldn't really know about my politics. I don't really like shout about it and kind of yeah. I keep quiet. I mean, the thing is, I mean, most metropolitan liberals, this kind of, um, this group of which I'm sort of a semi a part of, uh, I mean, I am sort of one of the liberal elite. There's no denying it. I'm just like a very right-wing member of the liberal elite and not a very elite member. Um, but they have no kind of uh, kind of hesitancy about just talking about in the room like, as if everyone has the same opinions of them. 
which I find, so I find a really strange thing because I've never had that in my entire life, uh, assuming everyone would, um, like, you know, obviously, like, leave is a terrible idea. Obviously, America is inherently racist and, you know, blah, blah. Obviously, BLM is, is a great idea. We should all take the knee, etc. Um, and these are kind of, I don't know, like, accepted... I mean, if I just turn around and say, you know, I don't, I don't agree with any of that, uh, it, it would just be very weird. But the, I mean, the, the funny thing is, like, even in my area, um, even here, a quarter of people voted leave. And it, I mean, there aren't that many old people around here. So normally in an area, it's like old people vote leave. Yeah. So there are many other people like me, but they're just very, very quiet. Um, and I think that's, it's like that in most institutions, you know, in universities, there will be a lot more conservative people very quiet. I mean, I get a lot of, you know, direct messages or emails and people saying, you know, obviously I can't, I can't tweet what you wrote, but I agree with it because I would just lose my job or just everyone, you know, most people just don't want to be hated by everyone. Do they? Yeah. It's kind of human nature. I mean, I know amongst, amongst like guys near here, that I've like one friend who's, you know, definitely also a conservative. I mean, last year, no, last year before last, we went out for a drink after the election nearby to have a good like gloat. Uh, everyone else in the area looks like downcast it's like the same look when england hide your smile it's like i'm so depressed um yes um so it's um yeah i mean it's it is very much a ghost i mean and the thing about um people on the center left is they tend do tend to sort of congregate physically into the same areas i mean that is one of the reasons why they're losing elections in britain it's because they're all tightly wound up pounds in like a few constituencies. Like my constituency, it's it, the Labour has a fifty thousand majority, which is oh, wow. no as a as a party because the Tories are winning loads of seats up north with majorities of three and four thousand. So they're just ending up with huge. But the, you know the the tendency of the great sort, isn't it, is it towards educated centre left people to move all into one area. Um, which makes, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, so there is a bit of a lack of diversity in opinions, uh, which I think maybe, maybe is bad for them as a, as a co-inner ideology. You know, I'm a big, I think it's important to try to understand your opponents. You know, you, you know the ideological Turing test is like really like a good thing to do to try to see if you could pass one of them. Um, and, you know, you read a lot of newspaper columns. I, I read a lot of newspaper columns from, uh, people on the British left, and uh, I get impressions like you've got no idea what I actually think about, like my, what, I, what I actually believe about the world. I mean, it's really like off. Um, like yeah. you can you can never go undercover at one of my like, right. party events and and pretend to be one of us because you just don't really know, and and you probably just haven't been exposed to that. Um, but what I don't know if that's that's maybe both sides are bad at that. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's quite interesting to me because it seems like one of the weird problems we've gotten is, uh, you know, like you mentioned, like, so if Labour's got a 50,000 vote majority in like this one district, and if you won, so you're, you're let's say you've won like 95%, and there's only 5% dissenting. It's like you've, uh, you've passed some threshold where you can like, like, it's essentially anyone you talk to is going to have yeah. these beliefs. So you just like don't even, it's not, you have to, you assume one way. It's beyond um, politics almost, isn't it? It's not controversy anymore. It's just an accepted view. Yeah. But I mean, but, I mean they never, I mean, they, they never have as much as a majority as people, as they think they do. That's the thing. Um, gotcha. I mean, the, 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 the referendum, I mean, I have complicated views on the whole referendum, but the referendum was, you know, like a left-right kind of divide. It kind of, it 
it had the effect of drastically, you know, shifting British politics. And so we went through the sort of great realignment. America went four decades over from the 60s. It happened to us really quickly all of a sudden. Um, so we were, you know, you had seats which had been Labour since the beginning of time, which were quite yeah. well, suddenly became Tory, which is unthinkable, like 10 years ago. But during that period, it was very much, uh, there was a sort of asymm asymmetry about the whole thing that um, there would be entire like remain voting cultural areas, you know, academia, civil service, uh, local government places, and you know, amongst social milieus where everyone has remained and people were really quite scared, worried about opening, saying those leave. And, and I don't think that really happens the other way so much. Um, you know, and I mean, now that debate is kind of over. The vaccine thing has sort of at least ended it for now. So I think. But for a while, it was, um, yeah, it was quite divisive. It's it's quite interesting. So I I remember in side note, I I remember uh, when y'all voted to leave. I was I remember I was in the car. I had this old truck, and I was listening to the radio. I was listening to the BBC because it comes on the public radio like late at night. And I went to get like a burger or something. And I just remember the 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 like the, the broadcaster. Like I turn on the radio, and the broadcaster. You know when they they just like they're horrified and you can yeah, like, yeah. hear it in their voice. And I was like, what is going on here? Cause you know, I had read about it in like the economist that this was going on. I didn't know, you know, that this would actually happen. Right. But it, and it was, it was just quite well, interesting. Some summer music at BBC, like the Royal, you know, the Royal <laughs> family died or something. Exactly. Um, um, they, apparently they were, I mean, it was, I mean, it's not a secret. Obviously most people at BBC would be re remain voting, which is fine. I don't know. I complain about that. It's the media. I mean, the media do tend to be, uh, a certain political strike but yeah there, there was a, a lot of people were very upset right it, it's quite interesting i i do wonder you know i go so i spent a bit of time in london and the thing i noticed was the divide between uh america and the uk in the big metropoles like i live in a big metropole and in london it was you know the beliefs were very similar you know almost indistinguishable yeah. but the urban rural like so i'm from rural eastern north carolina and it's like so far it's farther from like 60 miles away from my, where i'm sitting now than london which is you know thousands of miles away yeah, yeah. um what do you think about this big sort and this big uh this urban rural divide that has developed do you think this is kind of a new phenomenon or um it's a sort of exaggerated um form of something that went on i mean it's definitely become more uh, extreme. I mean, most, I think most of the, the sort of social changes in the last 50 years are just basically like dispersion. That's in the way they talk about finances, you know, rather than splitting in two, everyone's just, everyone's got the freedom to live the life they want. So everyone becomes, um, you know, much more extreme. So, you know, we talk about a lot of, you know, there's a lot of focus on people, for example, who always who are quite feminine and girls who are like masculine and, and, you know, the intersex thing. But far more men are like super, super more masculine than they would have been 50 years ago. You know, they're taking steroids. They're, getting, they're down the gym all the time. Well, like half of women are on like Instagram dressed up as, as sort of Barbie dolls. They're not half. As a, but you know what I mean? It's much more dispersion. So like, you know, some the, the gender norms aren't becoming the same. They're actually becoming wider. And I think that's the same with people's, you know, their politics to a certain extent and, and just their lifestyle. You know, people have more freedom to move. And if you want to be... You know, living in a big in an urban pod, eating insects, and eating <laughs> you you got much more freedom to do that. While if you want to go out and have nine kids in your trad calf, you know, family out <laughs> in the community, right? Th there are more people doing that. So, 
yes, I suppose the more the more freedom we have, the more extreme our lifestyle differences. And uh, I mean, liberalism has always been like linked to you know single singleness, being single, being um, what's singleness? Not a word. I'm figuring out how to speak. Uh, you know, childlessness, basically, like almost all the, the great early liberal philosophers were childless men. Um, you know, John Locke um, being the main example, who had some pretty bonkers views about human nature as well. Um, yeah, so the more liberalism today is now hugely related to people's marital status, you know, especially single women are overwhelmingly on the left now. And while women used to be more conservative than men 40 years ago, and that's the same in, in Britain and America. While um, married women tend to be, they're very strongly uh, pro-Republican in their voting. Um, I think that difference is slightly less marked in England, but England's also more constrained by its kind of geography. It's smaller, it's harder to, I mean, there aren't that many rural places in the South and England, it's just very heavily built up. And, And that's partly the difference in the country's politics is that Britain and England in particular are very urban. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the Tories now um, get, I think in the last, the last election, the local elections we had, it's, Labour had well over 50% in London, while the Tories were get, we had like more than 50% in people living in villages and like over 40% in people living in small towns. They, they definitely had a, you know, it's entirely now geograph- geographically built. Um, and again, urbanism density also correlates to how, how likely you are to have children because how expensive housing is you know so those are just sort of politics is just an extension of like sort of lifestyle values isn't it although i mean there are obviously loads of different exceptions there because i mean i live in an area which is very like everyone has kids here this is very there's loads of primary schools this is where i this is where liberals go to breed basically uh, and yet they've you know they here even then people maintain their their sort of general liberal values even after having children but yeah those are those are the basic trends, aren't they? I mean, and that's kind of bad news for conservatives because uh, England in particular is becoming um, denser, more, more heavily populated. Got it. Uh, so in, the, in the long term, that's, that's not great for us. I mean, the problem is for a conservative as well is that, you know, the, the financial power um, is in those big cities, like mega cities are dominate the economy now and democrats in terms of you know the counties with where the money is they and where the educated people are they overwhelmingly advantage against the republicans uh, and, and that's a sort of similar trend happening to us so i mean like it's the future conservatives just going to be in sort of like we you know left behind towns i mean it's called flyover in america but um that's right. kind of become a bit of a cliche in discourse town because like like it'll be nice to have you know like can it's the contradiction conservatives like i believe in elitism i just think we should have a better elite you know like a less sentimental and less narcissistic and um self-serving elite i, I would like i would like like the best people to be running things I-, I have no problem with that um i just want someone like lord salisbury from the 1890s to do it <laughs> rather than like the kind of sociopaths you see on twitter um so you know there is a contradiction of that with conservatism you know, loses so many of the educated and then it kind of turns into populism which kind of has a sort of self, uh, kind of like almost ignorance has become, anti-intellectualism becomes part of the the identity of conservatism, which is quite a bad idea. I mean, that's happened in the past, but lots of conservative movements have been quite anti-intellectual because a lot of intellectuals talk complete crap. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's natural, but... Right. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah, that I mean, those are slightly dis- concerning trends for the future. Definitely. I do wonder. You know, I have this sense that there's been this general decline. And we have you heard of Palladium magazine? Uh, yeah. Okay, so we had one of the editor in chiefs in Palladium on a couple weeks ago, um, and he talked a lot about the decline in social responsibility of um, elites in in the West. And you know, he charts this going back to the '70s. Do you think that's like a real effect? It does seem like that it, it's it's gotten. I, I don't know. Like it, it's gotten more like focused on the individual. It's less like um, like so. You know, we're we. I grew up in a mill town, you know, they shipped out the mills to China because it was like, you know, you can make a little bit more money if you do that. And you just box up the factory, you move it out and the people, Oh, well, you know, who cares? Do you, you know, all, a lot of this free trade rhetoric seems to be focused on that. Do you, th- do you think that's a real effect? Yeah, I think there is a less of a sense. I mean, I think in this, I, I agree with this on the, the meritocracy thing. Meritocracy has less left to led to a bit of that happening. But less of the sense of, um, well, elites now much more like to think they deserve whether to be where they are. If you're at the top of the thing, you know, and um, you know, I went to, you know, I went to this college and I worked hard and I got the. Well, before meritocracy was kind of normalised, um, then elites elites were aware that they didn't really deserve to be where they were. Um, gotcha. like you just got it because your great 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 grandfather like having to behead someone like on the back. <laughs> <laughs> Or like great grandmother slept with Charles II, so she like got some. Yeah. Um, I think there is a little bit of sense of that. I, I definitely get the feeling with, uh, and um, part of, I mean part of the, I suppose the populist conservative opposition to like woke politics. I hate that word woke, but it does convey a certain worldview. Is the kind of sense of real entitlement and privilege you get amongst uh, a sort of type of, I don't know, American elite, which is kind of spread, you know that. You know, come out of an Ivy League school, fantastically wealthy um, and privileged, and just enjoying incredible amounts of um, wealth. And yet, their entire identity is, you know, serviced around an idea that they've been somehow victimized, um, either because they're female or because they're, um, you know, from a minority, often from minorities who are fantastically privileged um, back in their home country. I mean, that's the, the funniest thing to me is. You know how much of the social justice rhetoric is from Indian Americans and Arab Americans and um, and and Gulf Arabs, you know, who've like had like hundreds of like literally a Brahmin lecturing like nice white people from Vermont, Vermont about their you know white privilege and about how racist they are. It's like literally you had a, like a racial hierarchy for like, thousands of years before something, <laughs> and you still have an incredible privilege back home. Um, you know, sort of making a, a grift living off these kind of naive sort of liberals, uh, you know, in, in Scandinavia and the sort of basically American parts of Scandinavia. Uh, I mean, I find that that's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's so brilliantly funny and twisted <laughs> at the same time. But, you know, the, I don't think, the, the, people, the people like that have a sense of obligation to everyone else. I don't think they do. I mean, I, I think there is what, there is certainly a sort of, you know, polls show that um, wealthy people have much less sympathy um, for poor people, both in the States and in Britain, if those poor people are white, which is, mm. they have no longer have the protection of, you know, they no longer have any victim of status. 
Um, so they're poor. So it's kind of, you know, tough. That's your own fault. You're a loser. And there is definitely been the growth of that. Now, you know, con traditionally conservatives are more likely to think that because they're just had harsher views about the poor. So in one sense, you know, I'm not in a position to complain about it. I say, but I do think like people on the left, that should be your, like, that should be your, your like, specialist error, right? Like, if right. you're not, like, speaking up for poor people, like, who the hell is going to speak up for them? Um, and so obviously populists are going to speak up for them because, you know, you can't have a society where the very wealthy don't feel some obligation towards the, the people in their own country, you know, who are less well off them. Right. They think, oh, my, I've just got just much obligation to like some guy in Chad or, you know, Indonesia. Right. Um, because no one's fooled by that. It just means if you, are, if you, you know, if you have just much obligation to everyone in the world, you have obligations to no one in the world. I mean, that's, you know, if the whole world is my brother, no one is my brother. That's great. You've got to have a society where there is some sense of loyalty towards. Uh, and I don't think it's a complete naive, like nostalgic idea. I mean, the, the only, the best measurement of whether that's true in the past is, um, you know, in the first war, 22% of old Etonians died in combat. That compares to about 13% for, like, you know, the, the, the soldiers in the trenches, the, the privates in the trenches. You know, the English upper class, the British upper class died in far greater, greater numbers than the people they were leading. I mean, that was the ultimate, that is putting your money where your mouth is, you know. Right. Like, sure, you can talk all about um, the system and, um, you know, and noblesse, noblesse oblige, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever but um terrible pronunciation um but you've got to put your money where mouth is and i i just somehow i just don't believe those people now coming out of harvard and yale who are on you know lecturing the rest of us on non-privilege and etc i just can't imagine somehow they would be the first to like jump, <laughs> jump in front of us. i don't think that, i don't see that sense of negation. i don't think that's a, a completely like nostalgic naive view of the past i think there was some sense that way yeah no that that that's really well put i like that that statistic you gave about you know etonians dying in in the trenches at a higher rate and and it's contrasting that today to you know this big settlement mckinsey just had to make where they had to pay like 700 million dollars because they're they were advising purdue pharma on how to turbocharge their opiate sales right the poor america you know and it's just like wow like we've gone from that to this it seems like um, the opiates, the opiate thing is just the most shocking, scandalous. I mean, I wonder if that's the kind of thing that, you know, we think about 19th century, you know, the things that shock us is the child labor and then the treatment of minors, um, minors in both senses. I wonder will people the like kind of really recklessly evil way, the way that opiates were sold to Americans is uh, really mind blowing. And it took so long for it to become a thing. I mean, are people angry about that a lot? You know, it, it's a good question. I mean, I think people are angry. I mean, I it, it is bizarre. It, it's not. It, it's one of these things where it's not addressed a lot because you know right. the 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 groups that are affected by it. I mean, you know, I have a friend. He still lives in Eastern North Carolina, and he was going to you know Office Depot, and there's someone laid out you know in front of the Office Depot, and you know no one just people were walking past them, and it's just this general degradation of. Uh, you know, society that's it, it's just concerning about caring for people that yeah. just doesn't seem to happen as much anymore. Yeah, I'm not, sure. I'm not sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about a uh, tech stagnation, like the Ross Dow. I know you mentioned decadence a little bit earlier. Right, yeah. Um, 
what do you think about that tech that you know the peter thiel kind of tyler cowan ross yeah, I, I, I read his book uh i'm a big fan of ross Dalbert. i'm not convinced that we have a stagnation there i mean i i don't isn't it just that we're it just gets harder and harder that's what i mean that sounds stupid <laughs> like once you invented like the most obvious you know once you invented a car obviously invented cars quite hard yeah. Then, you know, you've been playing like, what do you, I mean, the stuff after that is going to get really, really, really hard, isn't it? It's just, um, I think in the 20th century, we're just lucky to have a sort of period where, you know, those all those basic improvements were, were done. And even stuff like washing machines and dishwashers make huge, huge impact on people's lives, you know. Um, right. All the drudgery um, was basically gone. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know about that. I mean, I agree with him on, this, on the space thing, but again, when I kind of mention that to people, they kind of look at me like I'm a crane. Um, I think there's something um, about exploration as a kind of moral principle that we have to, like if we're not exploring and trying to expand as a species, then I think we have sort of reached a kind of brick wall. But we have to, I think we, we like almost obligated to do that, right? Um, right. So I agree with him on the whole like Star Trek thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, like Peter Thiel is like much cleverer than me. So I mean, if he if he thinks something, I'm just kind of obliged to think. Well, <laughs> hey, you obviously know about <laughs> stuff, and I do. So Ed, that seems to be a very good point. And that when we have invented enough technology to easily address our basic needs. We tend to get a little lazy, but the, the proof that we can still do important things is probably something like the vaccine. Exactly. But yeah. So that took, I mean, Moderna did it literally a weekend, but I mean, yeah. the regular something, but everyone at the time said, you know, oh, well, it takes 20, 30 years to the vaccine. But I think it's kind of one of those things where, you know, if, if someone puts a gun in your head, sort of thing, <laughs> it's a real like there's a worldwide pandemic like we'll 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 find a way if nothing else it's going to make us find that technology um yeah so i, I think the yeah the incentives i mean a lot of those stuff becomes i mean a lot of political questions are just harder now than they used to be i mean this comes down to trade as well like the trade issue which came out with brexit was so it's so complicated because as time goes by these trade agreements and these trade laws just become much more complicated that the average person doesn't understand it so I think a lot of this issue has come down to like the regulation, American regulation um, and how the regulatory system works, which is quite complicated. So I think there is an argument that, you know, that there's a kind of uh, slowing down of the system by bureaucracy. But I mean, I don't know how anyone breaks that. I mean, I would love for people just to give Peter Thiel his own country because I would love to see how it worked out. It could be amazing. Like it would be like, <laughs> it'll be a super futuristic ne near medieval paradise where people live to a thousand. Uh, right. yeah, <laughs> but I just really want to see that happen because, you know, test out those ideas. Definitely. G give it a try, right? And see what happens. Um, do, do you think uh, perhaps tech stagnation, you know, if it's happened, if we've picked, picked the low hanging fruit and, and growth slows down a little bit or the rate of growth slows down a little bit, it, you know, it's more like trying to divide this pie that's not getting bigger as fast. And so that, do you think that explains any of our, you know, why the political fights are so vivid? Oh, um, I mean, the period after the Second World War was, uh, I mean, it seems, it appears that we're not really going to get that level of growth again. Right. right? 
uh, I mean, a lot of that is just basically starting from a low base, and a lot of it is just um, was the population structure, wasn't it? I mean, we just yeah. It's basically, you know, the, the people born at the end of the war were just very lucky to be born at an incredible time of growth. And um, I don't know. I mean, now we're sort of constrained by housing costs to um, such a such an extent, which I think that certainly in England, that is the number one um, you know, that is the number one real problem that people have. I mean, apart from like the wine, like, the environment, whatever. Um, that is the actual it, real issue is, is the cost of housing, which is a really hard one. to right. like, The younger people, how do they, how do you sort of give them reason to like invest in the system? Yeah. There's just no, there's just no hope of them ever having a house or a flat in London or a, or a shed or a, a wardrobe. I mean, they're going to be, the cost of housing is just like absurd now. And we're right. in a really bit of a death spiral because the Tory party is completely, basically their voters are the people who have homes and they're all older. And that home is basically, they'll need it to pay for their old age because it's their right. savings. It's a retirement right? plan. Yeah, it's all their savings are in homes. You know, so they can't just sort of say, all right, we're going to allow millions of homes built because no one, want, you know, they don't want their, their voters. that wealth. You know, as the housing gets more and more expensive, the younger generation just get fewer in number and, you know, the birth rate falls off. So, I mean, that is probably my most sort of uh, reactionary, pessimistic uh, world opinion is, you know, the, that like a country's fertility rates probably do represent something quite, you know, dark and depressing. I hear you've got a dog in the background. Yeah, sorry, my, uh, my puppies right, heard somebody's. He's like, oh God, I'm danger. Um, <laughs> um, well, Ed, that's a really good point. So on the positive side, there is an easy solution, right? You just build more housing, although it's very difficult to get there, right? Like, yeah, it's clearly very difficult. Right. Um, are, are you down for a couple of overrated, underrated? Uh, yeah, the right yeah, term? yeah, yeah, go for it. Cool. Um, so Charles Martel, overrated, underrated? Well, he's probably overrated by the wrong people. That's the <laughs> bit of a bit popular. That's a problem. Sinister. No, I was really. Um, I mean, I just thought it's such it's such a fascinating story. Obviously, it should like as a caveat say that Charles Martel is very like uh, popular with like some quite extreme um, praise types because. Oh really? Like, I didn't know that. Well, because the battle. The Battle of Tours, the Battle of Poitiers in, in France, they, um, that was basically the great victory, whether the actual Frank, whether the, so basically the, the Arabs had conquered Spain, what is now Spain, um, they call Andalus, uh, and then they crossed into, into Gaul, which came in Francia uh, in 721 at first, and then they tried again, and, and they had you know, a huge army, a huge empire at the time, controlled um, in time at least, it was absolutely gigantic. And the Franks were this tribe who had uh, come over from really Western Germany, what is now Holland, into um, Northern France. And they they had this kind of rudimentary kingdom uh, amongst, but this was, you know, post-Roman Europe. It was the, the actual sort of lowest point of, of Western Europe population being devastated by plague and by the various other disasters. And it was very sparse and very uh, I mean, quite primitive by that stage. There are, you know, very small towns left. Um, and so this, you know, these group of sort of 
Franco-German barbarians were invaded by the biggest uh, empire at the time, who were much more sophisticated culturally. Uh, and, and they won, I mean, but very little is actually known about the people involved. Uh, uh, and this became, and you know, a, a Catholic, uh, a Catholic priest writing about it afterwards, or his monk, uh, you know, used the used the first term to describe all the, the victors, the battle tour, as the Europeans. It's the first time the term was used. There was no real concept, or Europe is an older word, but um, because you know these are people who are a mixture of German and various Latin-speaking peoples um, who were sort of united by their Catholic faith, and that was what sort of defined them as a sort of civilization. Um, so that became sort of you know the start of Europe, and the Franks built. Um, basically, they're the forerunners of France and Germany, and they were eventually split. Um, and so, you know, French history, we go to France every year, and it's just, the, the history is just fantastic. Um, it always fascinates me. So I just wanted to write a small thing about that thing. But obviously, because Charles Martel defeated the Muslims, he's sort of amongst, popular amongst certain... Questionable uh, parts. Yeah. But it mildly... Yeah, so... Overrated and underrated, I suppose. Can I can I give one of those cop out answers? Yeah, there? absolutely. Right. The best answers are um, Edmund Burke. Overrated, underrated. He, he can't be rated enough, really. I mean, he's the he's he's the prophet for um, well, you know, all British conservatism comes down to uh, comes down to him, and you know, I, I think he's still a good um, a good guide. The principles. I mean, the, what I find interesting about the late 18th century is when the French Revolution starts. Uh, all, all the sort of political. Before that, you know, some forms of politics are recognisable. From that point on, like everything, every archetype is basically recognisable. I mean, what's interesting in English history now is that for 100 years we've had our politics has been, you know, the Conservatives versus the Labour Party. The Labour Party is socialists, and the debate was really about like how much money do you redistribute. So. Now we're going back to the previous political position we had, which at the time of Edinburgh, which is basically Whigs versus Tories, which was much more of a culture war issue. The Whigs were the, the liberal elites um, who were, who was, they tend to often be nonconformists. The, the Tories were the sort of party of the countryside, um, uh, you know, and older traditions and the Church of England and the, the mass of people um, sympathize with the Tories because no one really likes the Liberal League, no one ever does. So we've sort of gone back to that really, our politics now. So right. you know, cultural war is a return to normal. But from that point on, the 18th century, everything is sort of recognized, all the archetypes. So obviously all of Britain's playwrights, you know, all of Britain's poets, all of everyone who's of an intellectual of any sort supported the French Revolution, thought it was the best idea ever. Um, even when it started turning into a complete bloodbath, they said, oh, you know, the ideals of <laughs> and literally like blood everywhere, everyone's getting killed. <laughs> Eventually, when it all turned into a complete dictatorship, um, Napoleon took over and Britain and France entered World War. And by that stage, obviously, I mean, this is like after, you know, like after 1956 to be a communist, like no one, but they still, some people begrudgingly said, okay, we have to support England, you know, against, because, you know, Britain's, you know, intelligentsia hates supporting their own country because they consider it just, you know, the worst thing in the world. Um, and Edmund Burke was, from, you know, the beginning, when this all happened, and everyone was saying, you know, great, they've stolen the Bastille. You know, the Bastille just had a handful of forgers and one, like, sexual pervert in it. It wasn't really an oppressive prison or anything. Uh, <laughs> you turn up the Bastille, just like, hacked the guy, the, you know, the guy in charge of it's death. And 
from the very start like he said well listen this is going to turn into a complete mass murder you just can't get rid of the monarchy and just have complete anarchy you know this entire system run by journalists lawyers and actors like the worst people running the country <laughs> and he said it's going to do a disaster and he was completely right and but i mean at the time everyone said oh you know you're just being an old reactionary you're completely wrong and then he died before he was proved right and you know he just sort of went slowly and slowly became more paranoid as he thought the rest of the world was against him but you know, that's, that's the kind of Cassandra curse of conservatives, you know. Right. Tell everyone, like, bad things going to happen. No one really wants to believe you, and it does. So. Right. Do, do you think, you, it, is it, would it be appropriate, this is a bit of a left turn, but I, I think it's related. Is it appropriate to think of the American Revolution as kind of like a British kind of class struggle? Or like, maybe not class struggle, but like, uh, kind of like political, internal political struggle? Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree. I mean, the, the Kevin Phillips idea that it's just yeah. a sort of sequel to the English Civil War, I think there's definitely something in that i mean my uh that's the thing i'd love to write a book about because obviously my kids are my girls uh are obsessed with the american revolution not obsessed with it but they know everything about it because of the obvious reason hamilton um <laughs> they know all about it um and yeah i mean i think it's it's a fascinating thing but yes it was a sort of conflict between the Whigs and the tories wasn't it but yeah the tories were basically mostly driven out of the country um, and the American revolutionaries were just, yeah, were, were Whigs. They were sort of the merchants. They were dissenters who were fighting against the Church of England. But yeah, they were they were very. Uh, I mean, they were they were very British in their in their politics. I mean, Hamilton is kind of one of the most sympathetic figures. Jefferson is a bit more. I mean, he's interesting, but he's a bit. He's a bit less palatable for British people, I think. Right. Yeah, I, I, think that, I think that argument that it was a sequel to the... I mean, the, the, even the first civil war, of the, I mean, even the English civil war, you know, lots of Harvard graduates went to fight. I mean, it, it did draw in America. There was a battle in Maryland in the English civil war. <laughs> the two... Um, I didn't know that. That's great. The, the two conflicts um, were intertwined. I mean, your, your part of the world was obviously, the, the, you know, the cavalier. Uh, you know, that was the deep cavalier heart of it. But, um, yeah, I think, that, I think there is definitely... A truth in that yeah now obviously it's the other way around now we're sort of being sucked into american in their political cultural battle right. um so we're the sort of outpost but this is a yeah it's a common thread it's interesting uh so i got one more here boris johnson overrated or underrated uh, i think i'm not a, i'm not a fan i have to say uh i think he's the problem is, uh, I don't know i mean the details of it he's very he's very popular with people and he's he's good at winning but you know he is a journalist so yeah. his latest, he has a completely chaotic life at the moment. Um, he's, you know, he's got a personal sort of financial mess. His love life is complete. I mean, he was basically homeless when he became prime minister. He was staying in his girlfriend's <laughs> flat in Campbell, South London, <laughs> having a row with her with some sort of wine on the sofa. And you know, <laughs> journalists tend to be quite chaotic people. If you read like economists of, or if you don't, that tweet i think that twitter account has been probably taken down by now you know journalists with their l owning their l's whatever it's just like list of journalists and all the chaotic disastrous things they do in their lives you know <laughs> um, these are people with a track record of making terrible like choices <laughs> in their lives and that's why they go into journalism and boris johnson was you know a journalist he would just always you know file file late file the drop of, you know really inconsistent really unreliable sort of person um you know great at articulating and making off-the-cuff speeches and 
you know, being fun and everything, but you don't really want those kind of people running the country, especially not when there's like a pandemic. You want some <laughs> warring middle manager, you know, type, or, or best of all, you want something like an airline pilot, you know, like a cool under pressure, someone who, you know, those are doing always checks everything like 15 times. Right. But, you know, I, I think Britain handled the, the COVID thing really disastrously. And, you know, he wasn't even turning up to these kind of Cobra meetings at the beginning. That's when, you know, that's the sort of emergency meeting. He was just too busy with his kind of chaotic journalist life. Um, and I think we really suffered. But I don't think anyone really cares in the polls. So, you know, I'm like an anti-bellwether of, of British public opinion. So whatever <laughs> I say, will be like the opposite of everyone else thinks. And yeah, he just goes up and up and up. So he's, you know, he'll, he'll certainly win the next election, I'm sure. It's quite interesting. It's quite interesting. Um, well, Ed, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I, I want to recommend your books. Uh, I really like the, uh, the, the small books on history. They're quite good if you ever want to get a primer on any of those subjects. I think they've all been excellent. And uh, you just had a new one come out. Isn't that correct? Uh, not uh, one of the small books, but you had a, a Tory no. boy. No, but that's just that the publisher gave a different title to the paperback of Small Men on the Wrong Side of History. So that's okay. Just, yeah, publishers do that sometimes. I prefer the original, but there we go. Great. Uh, yeah, but so that's the same. So don't buy that book twice. And if you do, don't like, give me a one star review on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fair enough. That's good. Um, well, thanks, Ed. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts and uh, where can people find your, your um, writing? Uh, well, just go to Unheard. Well, I'm the. Senior editors, unheard without an A, U N H E R D, the com. So I'm, that's where I am always. Uh, so I should be, yeah, pretty much every week. Awesome. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 